This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing political crimes. What types of political crimes are there, and what is their impact on society and governments as a whole? According to criminologist Stephen Schaefer, political crimes are one of the oldest types of crime. One can examine virtually any society or government across history and find assassinations, coups, and treason that led to the downfall of an empire or upheaval of political power. Criminal justice researchers Shana Mell and William Pelfrey defined a political crime as, quote, an act or failure to act which influences the interests of the state, its government, or political system. Mel and Pelfrey go on to explain that the concept of political crime can be broken down into two different categories, oppositional crime and state crime. Oppositional crimes are crimes against the state, where an individual or group commits a crime that serves to change a political system. Oppositional crimes include riots, assassinations, terrorism, and treason. In contrast, state crimes are crimes that are committed by the state. These are crimes that may be committed by national security agencies, politicians, or police. Examples of state crimes are human rights violations, political repression, or genocide. Despite their different intentions, Mel and Pelfrey explain that state crimes and oppositional crimes do have a few similarities. Political criminals have a tendency to believe that the crimes they commit are not actually crimes. Instead, they rationalize that the acts are completely justified. In addition, political criminals are looking for one thing when they commit a crime, power. Our first clip is from Political Scandals and covers corrupt American lobbyist Jack Abramoff. Abramoff was part of a fraud scheme perpetuated by other lobbyists on Native American tribes. The tribes wanted to develop casinos on their reservations, and Abramoff and the other lobbyists tried to profit off that goal. Abramoff agreed to help lobby for the Native American tribes, but he and the other lobbyists grossly overcharged the tribes for their assistance, adding up to around $85 million in fees. But in 2005, Jack's scandal was revealed. In March of 2006, Jack Abramoff and Adam Kadan were both sentenced to almost six years in prison. 
Both were allowed to stay out of jail temporarily in exchange for their help with a broader investigation into congressional corruption. With Abramov now on the side of federal prosecutors, Tom DeLay's time was up. In April, he resigned his seat in Congress. DeLay was later tried and convicted of money laundering, but the conviction was overturned on appeal. Even as a free man, however, he was damaged goods in Washington. He couldn't even get work as a lobbyist. A brief attempt to rehabilitate his reputation by appearing on Dancing with the Stars didn't bear fruit. It turns out the only person who really wanted to make Tom DeLay dance was Jack Abramoff. Meanwhile, the federal investigation into Abramoff's associates got broader and broader thanks to their star witnesses' cooperation. Jack cheerfully named names and revealed details of exactly how he bribed the legislators. Ultimately, over 20 people were convicted in connection with the Abramoff scandal. Among them was former Congressman Bob Ney, who admitted to taking a bribe. He became the only elected official to serve jail time as a result of Abramoff's activities. Plenty of staffers and lower-level public officials were thrown under the bus, but of the 100 congressmen Abramoff once boasted of controlling, only Ney was ever even charged. After the bribery probe had gotten all it could out of its big fish, it was finally time for Jack to face the music. He reported to the Cumberland Minimum Security Prison on November 15, 2006. The man who once billed no less than $150,000 per month was forced to work as a dishwasher in prison for 12 cents an hour. Out of those earnings, he was expected to start making a dent in the court-ordered $25 million in restitution he owed his tribal clients and his $1.7 million tax debt. While Abramoff scrubbed pans in the clink, the wider world remained horrified by his revelations about Washington corruption. George W. Bush never personally faced consequences for his ties to Abramoff, unless you count returning some money, that is. But his party suffered historic losses in the 2006 elections on a scale comparable to the 1994 Gingrich Revolution. In that clip from Political Scandals, corrupt lobbyist Jack Abramoff went to prison after naming others involved in his Native American lobbying scandal. He ended up serving four years of his six-year sentence, after spending time in a halfway house, Jack returned to lobbying and has had a hand in arranging meetings between President Donald Trump and foreign leaders. The scandal had a hand in fueling distrust in the government under George W. Bush. It likely helped Democrats gain control of both the Senate and the House in 2006, as well as the election of Barack Obama in 2008. But not all political criminals abuse their positions for their own gain. Sometimes they're doing it for a larger power, a foreign power. Coming up, we'll hear about another pair who betrayed the trust of the United States. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the show. So far, we've talked about a corrupt political criminal who acted out of complete self-interest. But in our next clip from Espionage, we cover criminals who acted on a larger ideology. It's one of the most well-known cases of espionage against the United States, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The Rosenbergs were American citizens who were convicted of providing top-secret information about the country's nuclear weapons to the Soviet Union. The Rosenbergs' intel helped the Soviet Union join the nuclear arms race. In 1949, the Soviets conducted their first successful nuclear bomb test, which was nearly identical to the bomb dropped in Nagasaki by the United States. This made the United States wonder if they had a spy in their midst. And in January of 1950, they started to get some answers. The Soviets were winning. America couldn't hold the world hostage with nuclear power anymore. Now, another country had the same destructive force. Despite the Rosenberg's joy, there was still some growing fear in the back of their minds. They were responsible for this great success. If the FBI connected their names with the bomb, they would certainly face life in prison. This fear came to fruition in January 1950, when American authorities received a message from British intelligence. That message informed the U.S. that a man named Emil Fuchs was outed as a Soviet agent. Emil had been working undercover as a Soviet agent in England. His goal was to monitor English atomic development. But his clandestine career was cut short when American intelligence decoded a Soviet message traveling from Emil to Russia in early 1950. The message confirmed that Fuchs was working as a spy for the Soviet Union. In January 1950, officers from Scotland Yard arrested Emil Fuchs and charged him with violating the Official Secrets Act. Within the month, Fuchs admitted to his role and was sentenced to 14 years in prison. Now, there's a reason his sentence was so short. Emil Fuchs was able to reduce his sentence by listing the names of other spies. This was a common practice for both American and British governments at the time. And they would find one spy and then offer to shorten their prison sentence if they agreed to report on other spies. The first name that Fuchs dropped was his own son, Klaus Fuchs. This is where the rabbit hole really began. 
What followed was a very rapid takedown of spies surrounding the Rosenbergs. On February 2nd, Klaus was arrested by British authorities. He too was threatened and given the chance to list more names to shorten his sentence. He took that chance. He told authorities that he had been allied with a man named Harry Gold. As you may recall, Harry Gold was the agent that Rosenbergs chose to sneak their atomic secrets out of the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. Harry Gold was sent to the lab to collect atomic secrets from Ethel Rosenberg's brother, David Greenglass. In that clip from Espionage, the other spies in the Rosenberg circle were starting to be discovered, and it wouldn't be long before the Rosenbergs themselves were exposed. In July of 1950, Julius was arrested. Ethel followed suit just a month later. During the trial, Ethel and Julius both enacted their Fifth Amendment rights when asked questions about their spy activity and communist ties. But in an era of McCarthyism in the United States, refusal to speak implied guilt. And both Ethel and Julius were convicted of espionage. They were sentenced to death. While the Rosenbergs and Jack Abramoff's crimes against the government were nonviolent, the subjects of our final political crime took their actions to the extreme assassination. This clip from Assassinations covers the Mexican revolutionary, General Pancho Villa. Pancho was considered an integral piece of the Mexican Revolution. He basked in his notoriety and even starred as himself in Hollywood films. Despite his celebrity status, Pancho had made many enemies over the course of the revolution and his entrance into Mexican politics. Rumors swirled that Pancho Villa was planning to run for president. While Villa hadn't publicly announced any such intention, and he'd sworn to stay out of politics just a few years earlier, Obregón must have known that Villa was popular enough to beat out his puppet candidate, Elias Callas. Villa also posed a military risk. For the past decade, every new president of Mexico had needed to fight a military battle to take the seat. If Villa intended to stage a rebellion, he had the military experience and the support of the troops to overthrow Obregón and Calles. And of course, Obregón still had a personal vendetta against Villa, who had cost him his right arm in battle years before. He may have wanted revenge, simply for revenge's sake, but getting it would be difficult. Villa lived on his hacienda with a small army of loyal bodyguards. He knew that he had many enemies who were willing to kill, and they would strike if they were given any chance. But on July 19, 1923, 45-year-old Pancho Villa left his hacienda to attend a baptism. A friend and former colleague was the proud father of a baby boy, and Villa was invited to be the child's godfather. Typically, when Villa left his home, he did so on horseback, surrounded by 50 or more mounted bodyguards. Shortly before the day of the baptism, however, Villa had purchased a Dodge touring car, and he wanted to try it out. Because the car could only seat a few passengers, Villa traveled only with his secretary, Miguel Trio, and five bodyguards. Villa and his passengers traveled to the town of Rio Florido without incident 
They arrived at the church and attended the baptism. After Villa left, he didn't return directly to his hacienda. Instead, he took a detour to the home of one of his many mistresses in Peral. Villa and his entourage spent the night at her home. The following morning, they loaded into his car and began the journey home. They didn't make it far. Villa's assassins had rented a house on the only road from Peral to Villa's estate, Canatillo. They'd seen him arrive in Peral the night before, and they knew he'd have to pass by on his way back home. When Villa's car reached the intersection of Juarez and Bereda, an old pumpkin seed seller shouted out the old war cry that Villa had used many years ago, Viva Villa. This was a signal. Seven gunmen leapt out of hiding, surrounded the car, and opened fire. The car was sent swerving into a tree. A hail of over 40 bullets overtook the vehicle. In that clip from Assassinations, Mexican revolutionary leader Pancho Villa was killed by seven gunmen. After the inquest into the assassination, former revolutionary leader Jesus Salas Barraza confessed to the murder. He was later linked to presidential hopeful Plutarco Elias Calles, who saw Pancho Villa as a threat to his own political ambitions. But when this information was brought to the attention of President Alvaro Obregón, the president ordered the documents connecting Calles to the assassination destroyed. This leads many historians to believe that even the president was involved in the hit. But officially, Pancho's assassination remains unsolved. In today's Crime Bites, we saw several different kinds of political criminals, but all of them, in some way, were in search of the same thing, power. Corrupt lobbyist Jack Abramoff enjoyed the power that came from money, so he did whatever he could to earn more, like committing fraud, evading his taxes, and stealing from Native Americans. Jack and Ethel Rosenberg sought power not for themselves, but for the cause they believed in, communism. They wanted to help the Soviet Union become competitors against the United States in the nuclear arms race. And if the speculation is true, Mexican President Alvaro Obregón was afraid of losing his power. He ordered an assassination to keep his enemy Pancho Villa from becoming the next president. In all of these actions, the criminals believed the ends justified the means. In their search for power, they were able to rationalize any wrongdoing. It's a great example of the adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on political crimes. We'll be back next week with a new episode on crimes that changed society. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Political Scandals, Espionage, or Assassinations on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time.